Hello, you're listening to the Let's Talk Future podcast series presented by Oppenheimer. If you're interested in the economy, markets, and investing in general, you've come to the right place. This series was created to fascinate and enlighten every type of investor. Curious about the latest consumer trends? How about innovations in healthcare or technology? The Let's Talk Future series definitely has you covered. Through timely and relevant conversations, we deliver some of the best thought leadership in the financial services industry. Our renowned hosts and guests explore big questions and big ideas and leave you with actionable insights. In this special edition episode, our featured guest is Rob Lowenthal, president of Oppenheimer. And our host is Jane Ross, managing director of investment banking of Oppenheimer. This episode was recorded on June 12, 2023. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to this special episode of Let's Talk Future featuring Rob Lowenthal, the president of Oppenheimer & Company. Given his position, Rob certainly has a unique vantage point into the businesses, challenges, and opportunities facing Wall Street. So we thought this would be a great time to tap that insight. With the major interest rate moves and the significant changes to Wall Street as we've emerged from COVID, there's a lot to cover. So here we're going to discuss markets and money in a time of transition. We'll look at the great wealth transfer that's currently underway. We'll discuss the impact of AI and technology on Wall Street's businesses. We'll talk about deal activity and interesting innovations and issuance. So let's get to it. Rob, welcome to Let's Talk Future. Thank you, Jane. I'm happy to be here. We are too. Okay, so for those listeners who might be unfamiliar with Oppenheimer, maybe you could start us off with an overview of what Oppenheimer is. Sure. Well, first off, Oppenheimer is a public company. We are a full-service investment bank and wealth management firm, and we have no commercial banking businesses. That's an important point because, as we all know, many banks are challenged with the fast rise in interest rates by the Federal Reserve this past year and emerging credit issues looming over the economy and all the problems you're hearing about with commercial real estate. So we do not lend to our customers with their own deposits. Rather, we help them make investment decisions with their capital and then hold custody of those assets for them. Our primary business is really wealth management, and it includes our private client division with just under a thousand financial advisors located across the country and our asset management division, which together with the private client division oversees over $110 billion in our clients' assets. Our other important businesses are our capital markets and investment banking divisions. In those divisions, we underwrite newly issued securities and we provide research and also advice to corporations, institutions, municipalities. Several key industries, including technology, healthcare, consumer, Financial services, those are all the ones we cover with our investment bankers, and they line up nicely with our equity research analysts. So in short, we provide advice to clients, and we benefit from a pretty diverse business model that touches a lot of different areas of the financial services sector. Yep. And you personally, you've been here for all of the iterations and the growth and the additions to the business. I have. It's hard to believe. It's 23 years now. And I've had the good fortune to participate in a significant amount of the growth at Oppenheimer. 
I started here in the late 90s, back before the firm even rolled out PCs or email. I started here with a focus on business development. I helped with several of our early acquisitions in the late 90s and early 2000s, and more importantly, was probably doing all that integration work that followed each of those acquisitions that helped me best understand our company in particular, but uh, our industry at large. The complicated task of integrating systems and people is where I really learned much of how the business works. In 2007, I was tasked with building out our fixed income division. That was a very small division at the time, and really right before the great financial crisis is when I took charge. And that created a great opportunity for us. In 2008, there were a lot of people and capabilities around that we pulled together, and much of the work we had done to expand our capabilities was quickly put to use, hiring a lot of really great teams that would not have otherwise been available had they not been separated from some pretty great companies that fell during the financial crisis. We onboarded over $100 million in annual revenue over 2009 and 2010. And then in 2016, after several years of running the fixed income division, I was asked to lead our investment bank, which had been stagnant in its performance over the prior couple of years, and we restructured that in 2017 and 18. And uh, in 2020 and 2021, we enjoyed a record revenue setting years with great success. And that business has uh, continues to have great people and great, a great future ahead of it, even though a lot of the activities of 21 have subsided quite a bit. So it's been a really wild ride, and it's it's gone by very quickly. I hear you. And speaking of wild rides and thrilling rides, you know, we've just come through an extremely volatile time. And this is kind of a broad question, but I'd be interested in hearing how you view the current state of Wall Street. So Wall Street's changed so much in the years that I've been working here. When I started my career, the Glass-Steagall Act had just been disbanded. So the ability to be both a commercial bank and an investment bank was made possible for the first time since the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. I think that decision by Congress still haunts our industry in many ways, and probably the economy too. The challenges and conflicts that are present in so many of these large commercial banking institutions around lending and advising their clients really creates a lot of risk. Since the great financial crisis, we have seen a trend to unbundle many of those services provided by the banks, and at the same time, a consolidation of market share amongst those really large institutions that we call too big to fail. At the same time, we've seen the emergence of advisory boutiques that only provide M&A advice. I guess here at Oppenheimer, we sit sort of in the middle between those small boutiques and those really large, too big to fail banks. Yeah. And, you know, listen, I know every cycle is different from the last, but when you look at this cycle versus previous ones, how would you characterize the current state of play today? Well, I think it's very different than 2008, which was the last time we saw banks in crisis. And I think every cycle has its challenges, but we don't see widespread fragility in the banks that we saw in 2008. There was a real possibility that our largest banks would all become insolvent back then without the aid of the U.S. government and that famous TARP plan. 
which really did rebuild the equity of our commercial banking system. Today, we have significant credit and interest rate risk, but it doesn't threaten our too-big-to-fail banks or the vast majority of those 4,000 depositories that are in the banking system. The other challenges we have today relate to topics like the government's role in big tech, geopolitical sea changes with the war in Europe, or the emerging tensions related to China, or all these reimagined supply chains for essential products like semiconductors or, I don't know, luxury handbags. Seems like everything got all <laughs> gummed up during COVID, and, and now it's having a hard time getting restarted still. Yeah. And I want to come back to a point that you mentioned as a differentiating factor here. You talked about the previous cycle. You know, this cycle has been particularly difficult for the regional banks. And we've seen some real vulnerability in the system there. So I'm curious how that has affected Oppenheimer's business. Yeah. Well, when we look at the last few months of this regional banking crisis, the big surprise to everyone, I think, is how fast those deposits at SVB transferred out. I think it was something like over $50 billion that transferred in 24 hours. I think that is pretty scary. And I think that the bank regulators will have a lot to do to make sure that doesn't happen again and to see how they can put in place to prevent you know, a run on the banks because it, uh, it really is scary and it has real world ramifications. In terms of how this banking crisis has impacted Oppenheimer, we automatically put our investors' cash into an FDIC suite product. And from one account, a client at Oppenheimer can have cash deposited in up to 40 banks within the federal insurance limit. So that makes it possible to have up to $10 million of federally insured cash across 40 separate institutions. The operational work to make all that happen is invisible to our clients, but they can see on their statement which banks their money is deposited with at the end of every month. So if this recent issue did not impact us directly, I guess it indirectly benefited us to some degree because a lot of clients moved their cash into their accounts at Oppenheimer and a lot of the people that are talented and became available again have begun conversations with us and see the benefits of, of working at a, a firm without a commercial bank attached to it. Yeah. I mean, being perceived as a safe haven is certainly a good thing in times of stress. So, you know, and you talk about the strengths of Oppenheimer, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot at the firm is the diversification that we have here and the silos that we operate in. That kind of diversification of our business has helped us also in this last cycle. Yeah, I think that diversification is not just diversification of revenues, of course, but it's also diversification of risk. We serve so many different types of clients, you know, whether it's individuals or corporations, municipalities, it could be endowments. You know, I think some of those institutions that uh, saw the run on their bank had a very concentrated list of clients, which was probably one of the risks they were dealing with. We also work with clients across the U.S. in many different industries, and even those from Latin America or Europe that are looking to invest in the U.S. with the U.S. institution. Our business is really about providing advice and execution. We facilitate our clients' decision to trade 
and help them either take on risk or divest risk through the purchase and sale of the investment products. But Oppenheimer doesn't express a directional view with its own capital. We act mostly as an intermediary. Our trading businesses are most successful when there is an increase in velocity in money movement or there's a spike in volatility in financial products generally. Well, okay. So speaking of velocity and movement and money in motion, let's get to one of the broader themes that's affecting our business these days, and that's the huge transfer of wealth, which is currently underway. You know, I would imagine that you feel like you have a bit of a front row seat given our private client division here at Oppenheimer, but let's talk about the great wealth transfer. Sure. So our private client division oversees over $110 billion of assets held in custody. Much of that belongs to the wealthiest generation in human history. They're the baby boomers. That generation is retiring, they're aging, and they're soon going to spend a record amount of money on healthcare, and their vast savings will eventually be left to their heirs, and we'll begin to see some type of tsunami of wealth transfer from one generation to the next. And so our financial advisors, they work hard to provide advice on how to do that best, as well as form relationships with that next generation of beneficiaries who we expect will be the recipients of a large amount of capital. Our role is to assist in that transfer, helping our clients make decisions about how they want their wealth transferred and working with their loved ones to continue to protect that wealth for many years to come. Well, and that's what's sort of interesting about this because one would think that the way those decisions get made are going to change with the next generation and, you know, that the priorities driving how to invest money are going to change. And I would think that a lot of the Oppenheimer silos align well with those priorities. You know, we tend to work in sort of the more disruptive industries in the economy. So don't you think that's, that's a, a bit of a plus? I do. I, I, think, that's, I think that's really true. We, we sort of lean on that front edge of where innovation takes place. Alternative investments also resonate quite well with the next generation. Through our equity research or asset management groups and all of our investment banking professionals, we largely end up focusing on areas of the economy where I like to say capital and company formation happens. So this is largely because it's where the banks don't compete. They don't lend into those innovative sectors. And so we do have an opportunity to make new relationships with new companies and help them raise capital. And those are often in areas like technology and healthcare and consumer products or food and beverage, even financial services and, and parts of the industrial services sector all have a lot of company formation that occurs. And so these are all sectors of the economy that young people have an interest in, many of them work in, they understand. So it, it, it does tend to be thematics that, uh, that they recognize and it resonates with them. Yeah. And speaking of disruption, let's talk a little bit about technology and AI. It's kind of a topic you can't avoid these days. Let's talk about the impact of AI and technology on the businesses of Wall Street and the wealth management business. So when we think of new technologies that have been introduced over time, 
Yeah, I think that there's always a fear when something new is invented and how's it going to be used. And yes, some jobs may become obsolete. I think that concern is very real, but I don't think it's true everywhere. You know, when we think about how history has treated technology innovation, when electricity was created, it slowly replaced steam in the manufacturing sector, but manufacturing actually improved over time and grew. Once automobiles began being produced in mass production, we didn't see a decrease in transportation. We certainly saw an increase in transportation, an increase in jobs to create roadways and things of that nature. And when mainframes were originally created in the 60s, many jobs were probably replaced, but we also saw so many more created by the improvement in business processing and capabilities that became new operating leverage for a growing number of companies. You know, another example is the internet in the late 90s, which certainly we both experienced. And I think by all accounts, you know, our lives are better as a result of it. And a lot of new companies have been formed and a lot of new jobs have been formed in the information age. So I think the future is better with AI. It's more complicated and comes with a lot of responsibilities for the creators and the users of, of that particularly new technology. But how does it impact Oppenheimer? I think we'll have many new companies formed and lots of wealth created, and that's all great for Oppenheimer. At the same time, I'm sure we'll harness the power of some of these new technologies to provide better advice to our clients and make our teams more efficient. No different than when Excel and PowerPoint and email and the internet were introduced. All these tools help our people serve our clients better. So I think our productivity will improve, and it's just going to make use of those new technologies to help our productivity grow and, and assist our clients. I mean, that makes sense. All right. Well, not the happiest of topics, but it's been a tough time in capital markets. Deal issuance has been very restrained. Let's talk about capital formation and capital markets and what we're seeing now. Yeah, we're going to go there, huh? Yeah, we are. <laughs> we're going there. Yeah, I don't think we're out of the woods yet. The public markets are closed, so there is very little new capital being raised in public markets. There's a significant amount of capital on the sidelines and even more in the private markets. But the adjustment to seller expectations and the higher cost of capital really hasn't been fully realized in financial markets. Buyers are very selective. They're reserving their capital for the highest quality of investments. So in, in terms of counter-cyclical opportunities and maybe the benefits of some of our diverse businesses, we are beginning to see the resurgence of activity in our restructuring business. Those teams are busier than they've been in years. And we have a ton of clients that are seeking advice on how to match their assets and liabilities and how to manage their expenses, knowing that additional capital will be hard to come by. Another thing that's kind of come to the fore in this last cycle is the growth of private capital markets and private capital being raised. And I know Oppenheimer has been right in the midst of that wave. So could you talk about that a bit? Yeah. So private markets that we participate in extend to really every asset class. So it'll be everywhere from venture to private equity to private credit. 
And in each of those categories, you've seen a large number of participants added over time. The number of sponsors, as we call them, that existed when I entered the business 23 years ago was a mere fraction of what we see today. These sponsors go very deep and very narrow across all sectors of the economy. This is true really across every geography as well. We see areas of growth in private capital throughout Europe as an example. I think private credit will take advantage of the current weakness in the banking system. I think venture capital will continue to benefit from all those disruptive innovations in technology and healthcare that we've been talking about. And I think that private equity will likely benefit from the lack of public company formation or IPOs. So that, that private equity market will continue to grow as well. And I know that you've been involved in capturing opportunities in private capital markets. I want to talk about our private market opportunities effort, which you helped pioneer. So can you spend a few minutes on that? Yeah. So I'm, I'm really proud of that effort. Back in 2016, when we took a close look at ways in which Oppenheimer could make investments accessible to our clients, we looked at the public markets first because we had so much experience and knowledge there. But what we saw was a public market where companies that were being introduced as newly issued public companies were far more mature than they had historically been. In most cases, the growth in equity value had been realized in the private market already, and the public market investors were really just providing those private market investors with a liquidity event. So that observation led us to a potential solution. We began to identify investments that we thought were good opportunities for our clients to put capital to work in the private market prior to a company going public. So that was the initial thesis. We made a few investments that worked out and those companies did go public. And we continue now to deepen and broaden what we're looking at in our private market opportunity portfolio, as well as now making third party investments along our partners in the VC community. It really is sort of a back to the future, what we used to call merchant banking. We are using our deep knowledge of industries that we know and our network of strong relationships that we've created over a long period of time to source these unique investments for our investors. So our latest investment in January of this year was one that uh, focuses on healthcare AI and it's a company that uses digital imaging to provide doctors with decision support. I think we can all imagine a world where screening for disease will be more predictive and less invasive than, say, a biopsy or exploratory procedures. Well, and I love that you mentioned that because I can pitch my last episode, which we just posted on Let's Talk Future about digital health. So there you go. Well, we've hit on some of the big themes, and I know this might sound a little bit more soft or kind of cultural, but one of the themes post-COVID has been getting people back into the office. And, you know, there's been some real life changes after COVID. So are we going to ever have a full back to the office work life? I don't know if everyone was always in the office before COVID. So, you know, I, I venture to guess we probably remember it uh, being more full and occupied than it probably actually was. But what is important is that the culture of the firm is really primary to what we do and interacting and 
ideation and things of that nature really only happen in person. So our people learn from each other, they gain energy, they gain momentum from their interactions. We're all about our people. And as the old saying goes, our assets go up and down in the elevator. So I think that's still true. While we will all enjoy the benefits of a more digital world, I think advice is built on trust and that trust is formed when you're in person. So it seems to me like being in the office is going to be a really important part of the next generation's upbringing. And so it's going to have to come back to a greater degree than we've seen over the last couple of years, but maybe not to such a great degree as what we saw prior to that. The reality now is that we all know that it's not practical to maintain a lease for use of a workspace that only gets used three out of seven days a week. So whether it's the cost of that lease that has to go down or the density of use in terms of the number of people per square foot that has to go up, something has to change. To some extent, we'll need to analyze the data across all of our leases as they get closer to expiration. We can certainly see that in the southern part of the United States, there's a lot greater use of the office than in the northern part of the United States. People who can drive up to their building and walk into a lobby and go straight to their office have no problem coming into the office and in many cases prefer it over working from home. For those of us that live in cities like San Francisco, Chicago, or New York, the idea of public transportation is really an obstacle. Long commute times and safety issues are a primary concern that I don't see going away quickly. Well, I like that you mentioned the next generation because that was going to relate to my last question for you, which is, you know, this time of year, it's always great. We have graduations. We have our cadre of of new interns coming into the building. And I know we have a, a very robust internship program. So in speaking to those individuals, I'd be interested in your thoughts about from where we are today, Wall Street is a career choice. I think Wall Street can provide a great career. It's certainly more desirable today than it was 10 or 12 years ago. I remember after the financial crisis, the internship programs and analyst programs were in a lot less demand. I think that the idea back then of going home and telling your parents you were going to work on Wall Street after the great financial crisis wasn't something that brought a lot of happiness to the family dinner table. Today, I think that's different. I also think there are so many different lanes of opportunity. Just here at Oppenheimer, you have wealth management, equity research, investment banking, private equity, venture capital, real estate, not to mention all the fintech that's emerging in our industry. So I think Wall Street's an exciting place to spend a career. It's complex. It's always changing. And there are so many interesting people and niche areas to learn about. There really are so many different ways you could spend your career on Wall Street. The one thing that remains consistent throughout is that you need to be apprenticed and you need to find someone and somewhere that's willing to spend the time to explain how things work. Our internship program started about 20 years ago, and today we receive over 1,500 applications for just 50 spots. The same is true for our investment banking analyst program. We stopped taking applications after only a few weeks because we just can't accept more than 1,500 applications and still analyze them. And that only has 20 full-time positions in it. So there's an endless number of great candidates looking to get into this business. 
despite our challenges in the current environment and maybe the slowest, the slowness of our capital markets origination activities right now, I think the prospect for our future is still strong. I think the prospect of having a career on Wall Street is still strong. And you know, as we were talking about earlier, you know, the, the jobs of yesteryear are going to morph and change. And you know, we need a new generation to reimagine what, uh, what the future is going to look like. Absolutely. Morphing and change. That's the name of the game. Well, listen, so great to get your observations and your insights. And we really appreciate your time today and hope we could do it again. So thanks, Rob. I look forward to it. Thanks, Jane. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Future. We know your podcast listening options are endless, so we're glad you're spending time with us. Don't miss out on our next episode and remember to subscribe today. Join our community to expand your thoughts on business, the markets, and the dynamic forces affecting them. It's time to talk future.